0: Everybody, if I can get everyone's attention, please, if you could make your way to your seats as well. So uh, my name is Stephanie Freeman. I am the member relations coordinator here at the Commerce Club. Um, so I am responsible for all of the member events, uh, and often we open those events up to the community, such as this one. So this is our first Young Exec Grown in the South event. They're going to be quarterly. Um, so be on the lookout for these uh, four times a year. Very excited to have you all here. Um, thrilled with the turnout, since this is the first one. A Couple of quick things. Uh, if you have any questions about membership, or would like to join the club, please come find me. Uh, you can also fill out a little card on the table back here with your name and information, and I will give you uh, a call or an email and answer any questions that you may have. Second question, would anyone be opposed if I took a group picture of all of your beautiful faces? <laughs> I've heard no major opposition, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> all right, I'm going to put this down. <laughs>
1: There we go. You guys rock.
0: Okay, not sure if I need the microphone, but without further ado, we're going to start this shindig. Uh, I would like to introduce you all to Giovanni Khaleesi. He's going to be our moderator for the evening, and he's going to introduce our very special guests.
2: Well, good evening, Greenville. How is everyone tonight? Good. I think we might need to do that one more time. Good evening, Greenville. How is everyone tonight?
1: Great. All right.
2: Much better. Much better. So we are really excited because we have the privilege tonight to speak with Joe Irwin, who is the chairman of Greenville Triumph, as well as Doug Irwin, who is the chief brand officer of the Greenville Triumph. So check this out. Joe Irwin is the co-founder and former president of the National Marketing Agency, Irwin & Penland, which he he and his wife started in 1986. Now, they started with one employee, and they grew that business to 400 employees having international recognition. So that is absolutely amazing. In 2015, Joe left EP to create and open Irwin Creates, which operates downtown co-working destination endeavors and supports Clemson University's Irwin Center for Brand Communications. And that provides leadership and marketing consultation services to senior executives. Joe, we're really happy to have you down here. Great to be here. Absolutely. And I want to introduce his son, Doug. So Doug has a really fascinating uh, career. So he is the That's chief. You what? That's one word for it. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. He is the chief brand officer of the Greenville Triumph Soccer Club and co-owner of the team. So after finishing Clemson, Doug started his career with Renato Realty Trust in Washington, D.C. Quite a distance from uh, Greenville. He was a predominant uh, developer with more than three, more than 30 million square feet of LEED certified retail space. He returned to Greenville. He joined Erin Penland before joining Joe at Erin Carey's. After overseeing endeavors built out and launched the one tower downtown, Doug began the pro soccer exploration process and transitioned to the club's leadership team. We are really excited to hear your story.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: Let's give him a round of applause. (laughs) All right, so Joe, let me ask you a question. So since this series is called um, Grown in the South, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and a little bit about your background.
1: Sure, uh, Giovanni. Everybody hear me okay? Um, I was born in Florence, South Carolina.
2: Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) give it
1: up, PD. And, um, and, and from there, we moved to Columbia as a kid, lived in Columbia, and then Charlotte uh, for nine years. My dad was in sales and, you know, traveled a lot and moved territories, that type of thing, and ended up in Tampa, Florida. And we were in Tampa for about four years, and my dad uh, became sick, passed away uh, very suddenly when I was 12, and my brother was nine, and, you know, that's one of those life-changing events you wouldn't wish upon anybody. Uh, and yet, in some ways, it was it was a great wake-up call to, you know, grow up and, and kind of act like you're the man of the house, even when you're still a, a punk kid, you know. Um, so it was uh, the, my, t- my brother and my mom, and she wanted to get uh, closer to family, so she moved us to Greenville, South Carolina, and we get here. Around 1970, uh, maybe 69, and and I remember leaving Tampa. Who who knows much about Tampa, Florida? Been down there and stuff. Really a great city, really cool, great diverse culture. You know, you got Hispanic and 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 African American. You got a a melting pot there. Come to Greenville, and I'm going. This is the most backward city I've ever lived in. And really uh, decided that I hated it, and that someday I would leave it. And then, you know, as time goes by, Giovanni, you grow up a little bit, you mature. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I thought this town was so backwards culturally, and I mean, not that I knew the world, but, uh, you know, Bob Jones was here, and I thought they were somewhat repressive. Yeah, I'm just being honest, okay? <laughs> and so I was not a big fan and that they had an outsized way about trying to dictate things in Greenville. So that's a little of my background, but then I go off to Clemson, um, and where I had a great experience, and then off to New York City uh, to really uh, make my way in the advertising business and you know the rest of the advertising story. So
2: rumor has it that when you are in high school, you were an avid soccer fan. Yes, I was. Tell us about that. Well... Uh, Look, and I see you smiling when you're mentioning yeah, that.
1: You have to be honest about certain things. Uh, so uh, I was a good athlete, not a great athlete, uh, loved baseball, played baseball, would have played on the high school baseball team, wasn't good enough, couldn't hit a damn curveball. Um, so, you know, if you're a, you in high school, some of you probably played baseball. If you're in high school and you're about a 240 hitter, uh, they, there's no place for you. You got guys hitting 750 in high school. So, um, so i played until the senior leagues, and then, um, football wasn't big enough, wasn't fast enough. Um, but soccer starts and, and as a new sport at Eastside High School in Taylor's. And I try out for the soccer team, make it and, uh, begin a, a two year soccer career because it didn't start until my junior year. And we were, that first year, the worst soccer team in America. (laughs) I'm convinced of it. You had 11 white kids uh, from Taylor, South Carolina, trying to play soccer, and none of us knew a thing about it. Um, I'll tell a very quick story that in one year, we go from being truly a a bad club, a bad team. And the next year, we get uh, an import uh, from... Uh, Argentina a foreign exchange student no recruitment just a lucky break and one from India and these kids were born with a soccer ball on their foot I'm convinced of it and the young man African-American kid who uh, Daniel Austin who was easily the best player on the football team comes out for soccer and I'm like Daniel he was a friend I said Daniel why are you coming out for soccer you, you could be Earning a college scholarship playing football, he said, "Because y'all are having more fun." <laughs> he said, "You guys love what you do, and our coach—I don't like our coach—and so I want to play soccer." So we go from being the worst team to undefeated my senior year. So uh, that was a lesson in what true diversity, not political diversity, can do in soccer. Is you know, it's just the most—not in political terms, but it's the most democratic sport. In the world, boys and girls play the exact same way, same ball, same field, same everything. You can be poor and play soccer. You don't need anything but a ball, and you can put up two uh, cones for the goal. And that's how soccer's played around the world. I-, I love it. I think it's. I think it is truly the beautiful game.
2: I love it. And for some reason, I have uh, an assumption that we're probably going to get back to soccer later on and discussing that. Yeah. So. Yeah. T- <laughs> So, Joe, you graduate from Clemson. Yep. You go to New York City. Tell us about that. What is that process of actually finding that first position? Where exactly did you work? What did you do? What did that transition look like?
1: Yeah, it was, um, it was, it was humbling. Um, I remember flying up for the interview. It was the first time I'd ever flown into New York City. How many of you have flown into LaGuardia? And remember your first time flying into LaGuardia? I'm flying in at night. The weather's not great. And I'm looking, and there's water. And it's, you know, coming closer and closer. And I'm going, my life's over. (laughs) We're going in the drink here. And, you know, I'm thinking about all my loved ones, and thinking, we're dead. And then then suddenly you hear the screech, you're on the runway at LaGuardia. Uh, So that was my first time flying into New York City. Um, And I go... from i had worked at a small regional agency in greenville right out of school and a really good shop but i had this unique opportunity i was asked to um apply for this job and i was one of 35 candidates for this job with this new york firm that wanted somebody from the south Hmm. to work on an account that was based in the south so i thought yeah just give it a go nothing will come of it probably well they make me an offer So I go to New York, and I worked first in a regional outpost in the south, and then moved to the city and fell in love with New York City. It's just, it is magical, and when you're young, it doesn't matter if you have no money. I had none, to be sure. (laughs) Uh, And Gretchen and I get married uh, about that time. We had started dating at the agency where we met in Greenville, and I proposed to her, and um, she moves up to New York, and... We were up there for uh, about three years and then decide, like idiots, that, hey, we can start an ad agency and, you know, we, we can make it big. Well, it turned out okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so tell us about that.
2: So now, obviously, you eventually branched off and started your own marketing firm. Yeah. What does that process look like where you're actually working for a firm and then you're going off on your own?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's a little scary, yeah. but we were young enough giovanni to to not be afraid and people said you know you hear this all the time about entrepreneurs uh, they're the great risk takers yeah. they they're they're so fearless they're so bold well i want to dispel that notion just a little bit because when you're 30 years old you have no assets and if you you know fall on your face and the company fails you got New York on your resume uh, working for the sixth biggest agency in the world. And Gretchen worked at like the eighth biggest agency in the world down the street in uh, Manhattan. We knew we could always get jobs. So we didn't think there was any risk. Although we did literally, you know, invest our life savings, Mm. which was not much. It was about $5,000 to start Irwin Penland. And, you know, uh, I won't bore you with the story of the growth, but, you know, the, the first year or two was a little rough. By year three, we started to grow, and and then we pitched this company that was a, a little cell phone company, and cell phones were fairly new at the time, and they were a little regional company in Columbia, Charlotte, and Greenville called Metro Mobile. And we kind of upset some bigger agencies and won that business. And Metro Mobile starts growing pretty rapidly. as cell phones start growing pretty rapidly. And so they get acquired by 9X. And then 9X gets acquired by, you know, it was one of the offshoots of the Bell Company by Bell Atlantic Mobile. And then we kept growing with that our geography with that grew rather than losing it to a bigger agency and then it morphed into this other little company called uh it was brand new at the time called Verizon <laughs> and uh and we really grew with Verizon you know we could say we were all that yeah. you know sometimes in business and entrepreneurs in the room know Uh, luck goes a long way. Mm. We were lucky. Now, we worked our tails off. Um, And we loved our work, and we poured our hearts into it every day. But we got some breaks.
2: That's great. Now, I know a lot of people in the audience are very entrepreneurial. And one of the questions they have is when you take that leap and you start your own business, one of the biggest challenges that they face is getting that first group of clientele. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you actually tackle that process?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I learned a lot in New York City, uh, working with different clients of different sizes and everything. And so we come back from New York, and I remember telling friends, all right, look, we want to be, you know, a, an agency that matters. We want to grow and become as big as Henderson Advertising one day. If, if Some of you who've been around for a while, Al, yeah, remember Henderson Advertising in the day was a great agency, and um, and people laughed at me, you know, for saying that. And so I said, we're not going to pitch an account unless their billings are at least one million dollars on an annual basis. Okay, now let's keep in mind, folks. I was in New York working with clients whose uh, accounts build thirty-five million, you know. million, that was not that uncommon. And so I'm saying I'm going to come back to Greenville, and I'm not even going to look at an account less than $1 million. Well, I get back here, and the old reality sets in. (laughs) Oh, there aren't that many of those accounts billing a million dollars, and the ones that are are with New York ad agencies or they were at Henderson. And so we start realizing we better humble ourselves. That's a big part of becoming an entrepreneur you got to, you know, rejigger all the time. And uh, and so our first account was a uh, giant monolithic uh account called Jazabells. It was the bar in a holiday inn on South Pleasantburg Drive. <laughs> Annual billings $35,000. And that and and that's when, you know, I started to figure out you know, you have to crawl before you walk. Yeah and walk before you run and if you're too proud then that's how you fail yeah. hey, don't be proud just go do what is out there and over time then you can start to take what you want but you know be be humble and,
2: i appreciate it no that's great advice yeah it's great advice now through the years obviously you start this company and it begins to grow yeah. And obviously the company starts to change, and I'm sure you yourself and your staff began to change. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, uh, that, was, that was the thing we didn't expect. When we, when we started, somebody asked me, how big will you be when you think you've arrived at the goal? What for you is a big agency? And I, I didn't want to compare what our office in New York was. They had, we had 1,200 people when I got there. And I thought, for you know, in Greenville, South Carolina, if we had, if I had on at EP, thirty-five people, forty people working for us, that to me is a major agency. So that was kind of the goal. And then you know, it starts to take off. We pick up some regional brands, then a couple of national accounts, Wachovia, and you know, Denny's along the way, and and others. I won't name them all, but. It it does take off, Giovanni, and you start realizing, okay, now I don't get to touch the crayons anymore. I was a copywriter and and loved that part of my job. But I also had to realize I've got to hire people who are better than I am. That's just true. And if you can't admit that, sorry, that's on you. That's humbling in
2: itself. Yeah. That's humbling in itself.
1: It's, It's so important. And also... I realized that my most important job was not to write all the copies so that I could pat myself on the back if it won an award. Mm-hmm. No, my most important job was to set a tone for the organization and tell all the men and women who would come to work at Irwin Penland, EP, that, hey, my job, and I, I learned this over time, I, I found this to be pretty powerful. Uh, I just said it one night at one of our annual uh, retreat dinners i said you know ladies and gentlemen you need to understand this when you come to work at ep you don't work for me i work for you now i want you to think about Mm. that because if you realize when you're starting to grow something and you want it to be important that your job is to work for everybody else at the company then you're starting to take on a role that matters and so that's, that's how I morphed my career, mm. and that's when it got to be really fun, really fun.
2: Now, Joe, we all have a certain amount of people that were just extremely influential in our lives. Yeah. that really helped pave the path and really inspired us to move forward. Who are some of those people in your life?
1: Started with my mom and dad. Uh, and and still, my mom to this day. Uh, even though you know, I, I feel sometimes like I'm parenting her, uh, as as she's uh, you know in a home now, and and we look after her, and um, and that's an honor to do. It's you know you realize that's your responsibility. You know, she was doing things for us when we couldn't do anything, and my dad even too. Though he died when I was 12. He made a lot of impressions on me. he was my baseball coach. He worked with me in scouts and you know and I think I learned from him to that everybody was the same that it didn't matter where they were from, you know what color their skin was whether they went to church or not or where they went to church didn't matter you treat them all you know with dignity and respect and and a sense of joy yeah sense of fun and So those were the lessons I learned. And then teachers, I could go on and on. I don't want to take up all the time because Doug's here tonight. And uh, and people were going to enjoy his message more than mine. Um, But those things from teachers and then my first employers who taught me. I I remember one quick lesson. Uh, I'm, I'm working for a gentleman named Bill Leslie at the Old Leslie Advertising in Greenville. And I have a habit uh, that to this day I do this all the time. I like to work, you know, put my feet up. And I'm on the phone a lot, laptop these days, not not back in those days. But I was, I was in a job at that first ad agency on the phone sometimes for hours a day. So I put my feet up on my desk, and he came by one day, Mr. Leslie, and saw me as a 22 year old with my feet propped up on the desk. And he was like a chain smoker who flicked his ashes in his palm, and he stopped. And as I'm sitting there, I'm on the phone, my feet are up, and he's, like, stared at me. He's looking down at me. He talked with this lisp, and he goes, well, that's nice. I'm glad you've got your feet up on the desk. You look awfully damn comfortable. He said, do we need to get you a goddamn kick plate? And I'm like, oh, (laughs) yeah." And, like, feet come down, never went up on a desk again the rest of my life until Erwin Penland, and my feet are up all the time. And you know. I pass that on, on to yeah, yeah, yeah. right.
2: Great. Thank you for that. So speaking of Doug, the next questions are actually for you. Yeah. So tell us about your upbringing and your period of growing up. What was it like to have Joe Irwin as your father? What was it like during your college years? What was your inspirations growing up?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, I – it was, it was interesting, obviously, being connected at the business, uh, to the business at Erwin Penland from a very young age. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's not an exaggeration that I would be at work in a drawer of a file cabinet when I was a baby. Um, it was fine. The file cabinet was open. I turned out all right. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, that with, um, with two working parents, you know, I, I, I was at work a lot. I was exposed to that at a very young age. Um, so it was something that was always kind of ingrained in me, just that, that work ethic and, and to be able to watch the company grow was pretty fascinating, mm-hmm. but um, I started to take a, a, a little bit of a different path, and it's it's a weird resume to hear you read it out because none of it says, oh, you're going to end up working in pro sports. Um, in, in high school, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I was really mm-hmm. passionate about that, really passionate about education, um, passionate about sports, passionate about coaching. Uh, I, I was a big uh, tennis guy in high school and college. I coached in college. Um, so to me, you know, a lot of the most influential people were teachers. And I think we have that in common. Uh, We, you know, we're, we're both big advocates for public education. And, um, I went to Clemson to be a teacher and I, I made the unfortunate mistake of, uh, graduating in the middle of the recession, which, uh, hit the teaching industry really hard, especially in upstate South Carolina. So when I graduated there, there were no jobs or anything. So I had to, I had to adapt pretty quickly. And he talked about, you know, moving with, uh, little to your name to a big city uh, just for hopes of job prospects you know I, I kind of had to give up that dream of teaching really in about four four months from graduating because I realized I just wasn't in the cards at least immediately um, so I, I moved to DC with a couple dollars to my name and and two people that I knew up there uh, a place that I didn't really spend much time in growing up but uh learned to love it spent about two years up there and um, you know, you talk about changing your worldview and how soccer did that, and mm-hmm. how New York did that. Living in DC is the same way. Mm-hmm. It's um, you know one of the most the most multinational cities in the world, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to see that all the different perspectives was was really eye opening there, and I think it. uh it just, it, it humbles you. But at, at the same time, I think probably what you felt about New York is what I feel about DC is there's no way in hell I'm going to live here for 20, 30 years. <laughs> there's not enough space. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's just hustle bustle. And and I think that we're both, uh, you know, a little more in tune to I'm talking about putting our feet up on the desk, a little more laid back style from both of us as we both sit in the commerce club with our jeans on. So <laughs> Um, you know, I, I did tuck my shirt in today, which was a lot, but, uh, but yeah, I think, um, that and, you know, still in the recession when I was in DC, just sort of finding a job where I could get it. Um, I think, you know, we, we take for granted a lot now, people that come out of, come out of college and get a job right away or, you know, you see what internship programs have done now and, and the ability to set up a job long before you graduate. Um, in, in 2009, 2010, nobody was getting any jobs right away. I had plenty of friends that went a year, year and a half, and these were good quality education guys that, I just couldn't get a job because there weren't any. So I I think that was a a real humbling from the start, and um, it certainly taught flexibility.
2: Also showed, I think, a lot of growth as well, like pursuing and actually taking that charge. Now, we have a lot of um, professionals here in the audience that are about to begin their career. And... Can you talk more about that process of actually moving to a new city, getting that first position in those first couple of years as a professional, and what advice might you have – for young professionals who are starting out be a career for the first couple of years.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean the first thing I'd say is enjoy it and make the most of it because it's it's going to imprint a lot on you um even if you do a or in a job that you don't like. Um and I fortunately was I was in a job that I kind of liked working in commercial real estate. I, I loved my bosses that made things a lot easier worked in a um I had an office in a let's just paint the picture. So I'm a broke 23-year-old in a city where I know two people. Working in a parking garage office that had no windows, I would get up in the morning when it was still dark. I would drive to work in a parking garage and I would come home after it was dark. So I'd literally go five days without daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was not, it was not a fun thing, but you know, you have to take it all in stride. It's, it's a challenge. Um, and I think you end up discovering a lot of, about yourself and I think part of what I discovered is as I had that job I was applying for other jobs that I didn't get any of them but I started to apply for stuff I wanted to do as opposed to when you come out of college and you're just passing along a resume to anybody who will take it mm-hmm. um, so so I think you learn a lot more about yourself and you know that the slogan is it's easier to get a job when you have a job that that holds true for sure um, but I think it's something where you know if you're I so I have I have some friends that are younger and just out of college, and have, you know they're 23, 24, and have already been through three or four jobs. My advice would be is even if you don't love the job, stick in it for a couple of years. You're going to learn a lot more about yourself. And, you know, wake up at 25, 26, and, and then reevaluate. Don't reevaluate because you're 22 and a half and, and you don't like your first job right away. You don't know what you're doing yet. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't. Um, so I, I think you learn a lot by sticking it out for a little bit. Thank you for that. I appreciate that.
2: Now, Joe, and this is going to be actually a question for both of you. So in 2015, after 30 years, you decided to make a shift in careers, and you started to start a new venture. And Doug, I'm assuming eventually you followed suit as well, and you've made that change as well. What is it like being in a position for so long and starting something completely new, and taking on a new adventure. What was it like starting that? And then what was that first initiation like actually getting that new venture going?
1: Well, uh, so I decided that uh, I was still young enough to do something new. And I I wanted that feeling that I had had when we started, when Gretchen and I started EP, of just every day is so exciting, we don't know what it's gonna hold. at e p just to be honest you know by by those last few years, I was comfortable, maybe maybe too comfortable, and the paycheck was great um by then, we were owned by Interpublic Group, a holding company in New York City through one of their subsidiary agencies, Hill Holiday in Boston, Massachusetts Great shop, love those folks and and I just thought, you know. I think at the time I was 58 or 59 and just thought, if I'm never going to do it, now's the time. While my health is good, Mm -hmm. while the energy level is very high. And so I make the decision to leave. I tell our third partner, who Gretchen and I brought down from New York to work with us as a partner, Alan Bosworth, tremendous individual. Uh, He's the president of EP now, or co-president, I think, technically. And I, I go to Alan and I say, Alan, um, I, I've decided I'm going to leave. You know, I, I, I think it's time for me to go. And he goes, You don't need to do that now. Don't, nah, don't do that. And I said, Alan, it's done. I'm out of here. And I said, You know, you're going through some tough times right now. Um, we were having to lay off some people because Verizon had cut their budget by two thirds, and they were our they were the 800 pound gorilla that you hear about companies having one dominating account or dominant account. We had some other great accounts, Denny's, who's still there, who's a great account in Wachovia, and on and on, but the biggest was Verizon. And when they made their biggest cuts and we had to lay off people that I'd personally hired, who we loved and thought about as, as family. Uh, uh, this sounds real. Y'all forgive me for saying this, but I, I said to Alan, I said, Alan. I don't need to be taking home this paycheck Mm -hmm. when we're letting go of of people who are great and and work for a whole lot less than that. Hopefully, you can use my paycheck to redeploy and keep from having to lay off some of these people. So it let me feel like I was doing a little bit, you know, Giovanni, of of the right thing. And so I leave and had a nice little send-off from EP. Appreciated that very much. And I don't have a job. Now, I've got this idea for Endeavor uh, running around my head for this co-work community for creative folks, and um, but I'm at home for the first time in my life. Gretchen had been retired for a few years, playing tennis, doing some civic work, church work, so forth, um, but I'm trying to figure out how to get this new thing going, and I'm on the phone all the time with people telling them about the idea I'm trying to draft somebody into this idea with me as a partner. Uh, Shannon Wilbanks, who was our head of business development at EP, I said, Shannon, I'm not doing this unless you come, not as my employee, but as my business partner. And I said, and that'll get you like nothing, you know, in the beginning, because this is like starting over. I mean, because it is. And she said, I'm in. And so I'm... Talking to her on the phone, you know, at times and talking to all kinds of other people. And I'm walking around in circles in my cul-de-sac because I don't have an office. Our house in Taylor's where Doug grew up is not exactly a palace. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> 2,300 square foot house when we moved into it 32 years ago. And, uh, you know, we, yeah, you know, we expanded a little bit and all that, but I, I didn't have an office. So I'm literally on the phone walking around in the cul-de-sac. And Gretchen said, after about two weeks of this, she goes, get out of here. (laughs) You need to go find an office somewhere. And Shannon was doing the same thing. And we called a great friend, a gentleman named Greg Pickett. Some of you may know Greg with the MBA program at Clemson. And, you know, because we were doing some work with Clemson, we'd help create the Irwin Center. Um, I said, Greg, do you by any chance have any remnant office space up in the one building and he said well in fact we do and he said what do you need i said well we could use a couple of offices while we conceive this half-baked idea that became endeavor and so that was it there's the answer to your question it was scary Mm -hmm. it was exciting as all get out and um and we've been having a ball with this will be our fourth anniversary coming up in the spring or endeavor, it's which wild. I yeah. know, yeah. Can you believe <laughs> yeah, it? No. Um, Doug, I asked Doug to come join us um, because we knew we'd be doing a pretty major building trans uh, uh, upfit uh, to the building space we were in on the uh, fourth floor of the one building. And knowing that he'd come from this real estate mm. background, I said, You know, you can be the guy in charge of this upfit, I don't know a damn thing. Mm about wiring and build outs and then he knew that stuff so he joins and then um i did something you're not kind of supposed to do but you know i drafted another person or two from
3: ep um but they were they left on their own and you <laughs> just happened to be there
1: yeah yeah that's yeah. the story co- and
3: contractually and, uh, that's what we uh, yeah also.
1: contractually yes yeah uh <laughs> as we used to say one of our pillars of Core values at EP was integrity, and every now and then Alan Bosworth would talk about. It. He said, "Now this integrity thing. Sometimes Joe, we have to practice, you know, um, flexible integrity." <laughs> I like, go, what the hell's flexible integrity?" He goes, "Well, it's it's situational integrity." Mm-hmm. Um, so that it was just so exciting, and 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 it's been exciting ever since. And I don't regret for one minute. Leaving EP, and if somebody said to me, would you go back and run EP or some other advertising agency again, I would say no Mm. and hell no, (laughs) because I've been there, I've done it, and and I just didn't see a reason to keep doing it.
3: Yeah, and it was kind of – sorry, Giovanni. It it was interesting because our last day was actually the same day. It was December 31st of whatever (laughs) that year was, which wasn't planned at all. We didn't talk about this. I actually didn't know that you were leaving until I was already trying to potentially look at leaving. I I worked on a lot of smaller accounts, and the main account that billed me was uh, Sears Auto Center, which we know what Sears has done the last couple years. Um, So I saw the writing on the wall and knew that (laughs) – Last name's not going to save me if the account I work on goes under, um, especially on the heels of some other layoffs. So, so I was looking at other things too. And you, I mean, you talk about the build out is when, when I decided to come along, even without having a space or really knowing, it, it comes back to what you talked about in the, in the background. And, and part of the reason I say stay in that job is, yeah. I never thought at age 25, mm-hmm. I was going to need to know anything about commercial real estate again, or that's amazing when you, think or about it. when you start yeah. saying that, that's I amazing. Never had any long-term yeah. interest to do that. And sure enough, five years later, I find myself managing a commercial real mm-hmm. estate build out and I, I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but as you said, I knew more than you did. Um, and that was enough. That was, that was what bar we was needed. pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The bar was very low, but, and, and I didn't raise it too much higher, but, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, would, I would say that is if you're in a job that you uh, don't like, you don't intend to make a career out of it, just make sure you look back on it as fondly as you can because you never know when you're going to need to use that experience again. Mm.
2: So, Doug, this next question is back to you. So this is the question that I know that a lot of people have been waiting for because you have to inform us how and when did the idea of a professional soccer team come to mind? because we know it's your idea not Joe's right no <laughs>
3: uh but it, i mean it was a little bit of both of our ideas. it was um it's kind of an interesting story i mean uh you know i think we're, we're obviously both big sports fans um soccer fans not humongous soccer fans but uh, as you said ap- appreciated the game um uh, both played some growing up and Uh, I think you know it it really Endeavor was humming along and we were growing that business and and weren't thinking about it that much but um, the United Soccer League which is the largest lower division soccer league in America uh, was looking at starting a new league they've got uh, a 36 team league that is kind of the triple a of minor league soccer that operates in Charlotte and Charleston and Atlanta and nashville until this year and a a bunch of raleigh a bunch of other cities and and they were looking at bringing a new league online to be kind of the double a um level which Greenville's about a double a sized city we grew up with the greenville braves playing double a baseball and um they were really barnstorming the u.s looking at potential cities and and greenville was one of their first stops on a tour of 50 some cities and i think you found out originally that they had come to town and and met with uh, a lot of local business leaders. I always joked. I said you were immediately humbled because you weren't invited to that meeting, so um, they didn't. What's up with yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so we had to find out about it after the fact um, that they were very interested in Greenville, and a lot of it was just goodwill and and them looking for you know is there an interest for that here, uh, is there an interest for potential ownership, and you brought that to my attention. We called them and had a couple phone calls with them just to kind of see what they were about, and at the same time that we were doing background info on the league, we come across this petition that had started a couple years prior to bring pro soccer to Greenville. That was a fan driven petition that had almost a thousand signatures, and that you know that kind of took us aback. Um, and I think that was we met some of those people that had started the petition and. Um, continued to talk to other people to, to try and get check how crazy we were. Um, we had spent time around minor league sports. Yeah. Uh, Dad was pretty instrumental in bringing the Greenville drive to town after the Greenville Braves left. And um, i had gotten to work on the drive account myself some for a couple of years when I was at Irwin Penland. So uh, we knew the business a little bit, mm. not so much running it day to day from, but marketing advertising and creation of it. Um, so we just after, Probably eight months, this would have been 2016, after eight months or so, decided to take the leap. I should say we took the leap. He took the leap. It's his money, not mine. Um, and will never be mine now because we took the leap. <laughs> it's, um, it's his mother's money. That's right. Yeah. Um, but one of the first things we did was we went out and hired someone that had run it day to day, and that was important for us. So we were able to get Chris Lewis, who had been running the hockey team and had engineered a great turnaround to the hockey team uh, across a five-year period, And uh, we we needed someone who had been in that life, who had worked, you know, sports is a very um, niche area and experience is really invaluable uh, in sports. So once we brought Chris on board, we felt confident enough to to get things rolling. And from that point, we had about 13 months, if that, Mm. to roll it out before we started playing in 2019. That's awesome. So one final question before
2: we open it up to the audience, and we're going to go back to Doug. Because you just finished Season 1, mm-hmm. and now we're heading into Season 2, which I know is going to be very exciting. Talk about Season 1 and, more importantly, what you're excited about as we head into Season 2.
3: Yeah. Uh, season 1 was phenomenal for us. I think we were we were blown away by the, uh, by the fan support. Again, we had things like that petition – um that had us energized and excited but you never really know until you open the door Mm -hmm. kind of same with starting endeavor you don't really know how many people are going to show up until you're open for business um and we sold out the first game and uh had a little dip in attendance after that but the second half of the season i think almost every game improved on the attendance from the game before so we saw that and that you know that got us excited for year two the team that we put together was fantastic i think we didn't really have um I don't want to say we didn't have any expectation because we were able to bring in a world class head coach and John Harks, but um, we certainly didn't think we were going to make the final. I remember, mm-hmm. you know, I remember a time in June of last year where I was making vacation plans for mid October because it looked like we were way out of the playoff race, and we end up turning it around and um, adding a couple guys in season and making a run all the way to the final. And that's that playoff run is really when a lot of people around town started to notice us that and the fact that we. Hand it out about as many thousand of these as we possibly can, and don't worry, we brought enough for everyone here. Yes, um, but I, you know, I think f- from our standpoint, we're for year two. We're really excited because we didn't rest on anything from year one. The second the season ended, we were working on year two. We we kind of tweaked our, our staff throughout year one, and um, you know had some people leave, and then really made some upgrade hires. A couple of them are here in the room tonight with us, um, but we're geared up, and and I think that you know that proof point of playing the first season and making it to the final and making an impact in the community of what we did with um, underserved youth, with schools, with after school programs. Everything in the community is now people say okay you know this wasn't a one season wonder these these guys are here for real so we think we got a lot of momentum and uh in the community and i think our expectations on the field are i try and keep them in check they're they're pretty high um we returned over half the team i think we returned probably the most players any team in the league so on the field out of the gate we want to come out and start hot and um, as, as Chris Lewis says, he's, he's worked in sports 25 years and he's still waiting on the ring. He came close, uh, with the Washington Capitals and we came close last year. So, uh, you know, I, I think from an on the field perspective, we're, we're hoping to get the ring this year too.
1: Could I add a little yeah. something to that? I want to just share this too, uh, for all of you. And, and by the way, thank you for this opportunity. We appreciate everybody. Stephanie, thank you. And, uh, just the chance to talk to people who are, you know, movers and shakers in town, um, and y- you matter to us uh, because this, as we've been saying, son, you know, since the first day, this is not about a business. Mm-hmm. It's a mission. Mm-hmm. And our mission is really not about soccer. It's, it's about using the platform of soccer at, at the pro level to create and spread joy mm-hmm. uh, for people throughout the upstate, really anybody we touch with the mindset that we are an inclusive, you know, thinking organization. Um, So we wanna reach kids, Doug said it, in those underserved communities. So whether you're in Berea or the affluent, you know, East Side, um, you can experience the brand. Um, The kids who can't afford to come to clinics, uh, we're gonna put those clinics on for nothing. And and we just love that. Uh, and, I, and I consider it, um, you know, we are, to use an old Mary Chapin Carpenter song. Uh, I don't we think, think
3: anybody in this room knows who Mary Chapin Carpenter <laughs> is. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank okay you. a couple. Thank you. All
1: right. Uh, 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 called These Are the Days. We are blessed and lucky. And we want to always remember that and humble ourselves as we go about this mission-based work. And I want to tell a story about the shield. Would you hand me one of those? Yes. Yeah. Um, Doug taught me, said, you know, Dad, because he is a student of sport. And grew up that way. And he said, the shield, you know, what is on our kit? That's, you know, the jerseys are called, the uniform is called a kit. And he said, that is everything. We've got to get this right. So I said, great, you're in charge of the process. <laughs> so don't screw it up. And so he starts doing a lot of research. And I remember one of the first things you told me, son, was that, you know, I studied all the, the history of sports teams in Greenville, no sports team, professional team, and there have been a bunch of them, many of you know started and failed indoor football that type of thing uh, has had as their uniform colors blue and green. Uh, I think maybe one the groove. the groove the NBA
3: development Speaking league of team things that no one would remember yeah. here. yeah,
1: yeah. And he said, "So what do you think of blue and green?" I said, "I like it because." This town, when you think about Greenville's character, and yeah, authenticity is everything in brand. And we know that. I know that from my branding background. So we wanted blue and green as colors. And we wanted to depict what greater Greenville, and we are not just Greenville City. It's greater Greenville and the upstate is all about. And it's about the rivers, so the light blue of the rivers, the blue mountains, and then the green, of course, and we went with soccer club rather than football club because in the U.S., let's be honest, we, we play soccer. That's You know, it's football in Europe and, and around the world, but it's soccer. Plus, we love the little double entendre of Greenville Triumph
3: SC, South Carolina. See what I did there? And... One we, we use green from Greenville and soccer club because it sells like South Carolina. We're not above low hanging fruit. No, yeah.
1: no, no, we can be cheap and cheesy. And then here's something that not a lot of people know. And and so this is inside baseball. Uh, pardon the pun when we're we're mixing sports here. But if you look at the green of the shield, you'll notice it's not a solid green. It's a gradient, and the reason for that comes from his mom, my wife, Gretchen, uh, she didn't know it. Uh, she was flying back from seeing our daughter out in Colorado, and we had just started this process. We had, I think, you penciled out the first shield design. Which is terrifying because I can't draw
3: to save my life. No, and it was horrible. Probably but it, was, but, yeah.
1: but But we knew it was, there was something there there. Yeah. It, it was kind of cool. And I'm at home, and Gretchen's flown back from um, Colorado, from Denver, and she said, "When's the last time you were on a plane in the spring?" Well, I hadn't flown in a while because I'd start this new company and everything Endeavor and Irwin Creates. And she goes, "Gosh, there's you know, there's no mystery why this town's called Greenville, Joe." And I'm coming in; it was like April of the year before we started play. And she said, "And and I'm flying in to GSP, and I'm looking down, and you see not just a green." you see multiple greens because it, in the spring you see the evergreens, but then you also see the light, bright greens of spring. And I'm sitting there, she's saying that, and I'm just going, duh. And so we get back, get with Doug, and go see the art director who's going to really refine Doug's rough concept and say, hey, we don't want like a PMS green. We want a gradient. And he goes, no, you don't. And I said, what do you mean, no, we don't? He said, because reproducing it will be inconsistent.
3: It'll be a pain. And I said. You said Doug will have to worry about that. So I'm fine with it because I'm still living it every day. right?
1: Right. So we said, yes, we do. We'll live with the challenges of it. So that is the true story of how the gradient green and the shield. And we're kind of proud of this. We are. And the fact that it's been adopted by so many people, I don't think it's an accident. look, y'all, we're making more mistakes every day than I could have dreamed possible, but we're getting more and more things right, and the one thing we're not going to get wrong, we're going to cherish the fan base, those who invest, you know, whether it's a a cheap ticket or a premium ticket, we're going to treat them with honor, dignity, and we're going to give them Chick-fil-A-like service. Uh, I tell the staff all the time, and, and some of them are here, if somebody says to you thank you at the gate because you did something to help them, you don't say, no problem. You say, my pleasure. And thus give that kind of great service that makes people want to come back. So that's a little story about the Shield and how we live the brand. Thank you for letting me go. No, I appreciate that.
2: It was an interesting story. And I know that we are all excited for the second season. So... Doug and Joe, do we have time to take a couple of questions from the audience? Do you mind? We're okay.
1: here all night. Come on up. Come on up.
2: No. We actually have a couple of mics over here. No. <laughs> <laughs> we we want to get on the podcast. Come on up. Come on, fancy. I'll get your butt up here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming up. We appreciate that.
0: Thank you. I didn't know I was going to be in front of everybody, <laughs> but.
1: Um, one thing I think you don't know about Joe, Joe, were you a cheerleader at Clemson University? Yes, sir. <laughs> Did anybody know that Joe was a cheerleader? Well, we have one over here. But uh, my question is, I know your, your temporary uh, facilities at Legacy. Yeah. Are you getting any closer on uh, choosing a site for the permanent home of the Triumph?
3: You answer, and if you say too much, I'll just punch you
1: in the shoulder. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, the answer is, and thanks, Al, for the question. The answer is yes. We're getting closer. We got a long way to go. You know that that will have to be a public-private partnership. Uh, the Irwins are not the Gates. Bill and Melinda have a few more zeros in their, and we're already investing. Uh, a lot of money, and, and you know, again, for, for education purposes, I will tell you that the amount of money that you lose doing something like this early on is significant. You have to be prepared for that and play the long game, and, and, and there's no guarantee. So we hope that works. In the meantime, we're just starting the process of talking to some developers, public-private partnerships, so stay tuned.
3: Hey, Joe, looking around the audience today, I see a lot of people that either have just started their careers or are about to start in their careers. And I know you said when you started EP that there wasn't, you weren't as scared while you did invest your life savings. I feel like a big barrier to entry for a lot of people graduating college these days is their student loan debt. What would you say to somebody right now who may be hesitant or scared to start their own business because they feel like they have that huge weight on their shoulders?
1: yeah well, that's a great one. And uh, respect that obligation. R- remember that that student loan debt is an obligation and and honor it. Um, so if you you know these days, if that's what we didn't have when we launched Irwin Penland. We didn't have that kind of debt, so we could be a little bit fearless. Um, you know with debt, y- you have to temper, you know, how fearless can you be. So I would say to to those young people who are thinking about that, you make sure that you can meet your obligations before you take enormous risk, because that's money you owe. And, you know, look, and for a lot of people, they don't get that education without those loans. So I don't know that that's a great answer but i always you know when i owe money and look we owe some money now for part of what we're doing it's you you have to respect that and do those things first before you can go take plunge experiences
3: but i also think you know it it's something that is is a good teaching lesson um <laughs> You know, I, I was fortunate to not have any loan debt, but guess what? When I moved to D.C., broke, I built up some debt pretty quick. Um, and, and I mean, it was one of the best financial lessons I ever learned. Because so. who didn't bail you out? Them. That's right. That's right. I had about I had about three more weeks before it was pack up and come back home because you failed. Um, so, it, you know, it, it is something. It, it, it teaches you discipline right away. So there are some blessings in it, and I, I would say, because – if you don't have the loan debt and you build, build some up quick like I did, um, it, it certainly creates some adversity that, uh, to some extent, if you don't let it get out of control, is healthy adversity to face on early in your career.
2: All right, got time for one more question. Do we have one more person that would like to ask a question? Come on up.
1: Thank you, guys, uh, for uh, name coming out tonight. Seth, I work for Signature Wealth Strategies. Um, I know you're really involved in politics. Um, How have you uh, balanced staying true to what you believe in the political field while also growing a business? Because I know in cancel culture, that kind of stuff, uh, speaking out sometimes can be scary. But also, you know, you you still have that belief in your heart. So how have you balanced that? And also, I mean, you're free to answer to it, just for Joe. Well, it's it's a fair question. And um, honestly, I'm not. As involved in politics as I was, I was the chairman of the Democratic Party uh, for two terms in South Carolina. If you want, if you want the job of an underdog, try doing that job <laughs> for two terms. Uh, but that too was a great lesson; it was humbling, and we produced uh, you know some memorable debates that were televised nationally and internationally in Greenville, in Orangeburg, in Charleston. That really kind of put Greenville on the map and made. Democrats, and and, for, and if you're not a Democrat and you hate on Democrats, that's fine. That's fine. I'm, my mom's a Republican. My wife is a, uh, a GDI, uh, you know, an independent, and, uh, and she hates politics. And I always respected that. And people never heard me trash the other side. It's just, you know, I couldn't look at the people I loved. I couldn't look at my son and say, yeah, I I took all these cheap, cheesy shots at Bush or at... No, don't do that. And so now I'm not uh, very involved anymore. Now, having said that, um, that some of the values that we hold that were emblematic in in my political orientation are values that I'm not going to hide. So I may not talk politics anymore. I never tweet about politics. Um, But if some people come out to our game and they see a pride flag uh, flying and they have a problem with that, that's a them problem. Because some of the things that we believe in about our in close, inclusive approach, people would say, well, that's liberal, you know, like Democrat. Well, no, it's, it's not. It's just appreciation that everybody has value and dignity. And so that's where, I guess, to your question – um, I still live the values that were part of who I was in politics, but now I just don't do them in the political arena at all.
3: And it's a delicate line to walk. Um, you know, we, we're we're in soccer, which is historically the most progressive um, sport in the country, and We're doing it in a place that is not known necessarily as the most democratic progressive place in the country. Now, Greenville is an incredibly dynamic town um, with a, you know, a very multinational presence. Again, things that helped us get into soccer with companies like BMW and Michelin, they're all suppliers, but you know, you talk about the pride flag and stuff. And and to be frank, some of the stuff we just we are careful. Um, You know, you don't you you talked about cancel culture and not putting your foot in your mouth. Um, Most of the stuff we see in soccer and are cautioned by other teams. Um, I mean, I remember our first home match, we had a big incident with a player of an opposing team um, saying a uh, homophobic slur to one of our fans. So, you know, (laughs) We, we couldn't ignore that, we had to kind of wade into those waters pretty quickly so and and you want to balance um you know i th- I think we've talked about before is Democrats, Republicans, and they all buy soccer tickets mm-hmm. so so with with some stuff you know with how we market with theme nights we we've decided to take a You know, a a slow approach and to to bring it back to the brand, it's, it's all about hearing the feedback from, uh, from your fans. You know, I think of things like Pride Night where some teams in more liberal parts of the country might leap in, you know, jump off into the deep end really quick where to be frank, we, you know, we believe in it, but we want to, we want to be careful and respect everyone's views and, and listen to fan feedback. It's what I think makes the brand so great is we've involved our fans at every turn and it's, What, you know, helped you in business for 30 years, too. You talk about working for your employees. It's all about listening to the people that um, that help you achieve your goals. So I I think that's something we've learned and continue to practice, regardless of any political stance.
1: And and if you can't tell, um, I I really uh, consider myself to be incredibly lucky that I get to work with this guy Mm. and have learned, you know, probably as much from him as he ever learned from me. And he taught me one of the most valuable things about social media, as I was, you know, late to the party, and still to this day, I'm not on Instagram a lot, but I do use Twitter a decent amount, Facebook some, um, which is, you know, I remember somebody was criticizing us because of, of some, and he just said, "Dad, don't read it, mm. just let it go. Haters gonna hate." And, and I don't think that's the terminology I use, but you, the message is on
3: point. Yeah, yeah but but
1: that was, the, that was the takeaway I had. So I would have this, if I can give you one lesson, don't go there. Don't be that guy or that lady who thinks you have to light up this person or that organization on Twitter or any other social platform. Um, my rule for using Twitter as an example is if I don't have something positive to say, I don't say it. And I think I've only considered delving that way once or twice. And every time I do, I remember what Doug said, which is, would you want to be on the other end of that? And hearing you, who a lot of people value your opinion, Dad, saying something that's really, you know, skewering them. And I I go, no, I don't.
2: Well, that about wraps up our evening, and I will say it has been such a joy and a privilege to actually hear your story. I think, Doug, it was so interesting hearing about how you had this vision for the soccer team and to actually see this soccer team, which was just a simple vision, become a reality and seeing how it's touching the community. And I loved how, Joe, how you talked about the love and the joy of soccer when you were a child. And it's almost as it's come full circle and it's a loving bond between the father and the son with the son's image now fulfilling your element where it's coming full circle. So yep. that is what I took out of this evening, and I thought it was an extreme joy. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank we want to thank, thank our audience for coming down here. This is our first event we're going to be doing for a year. And until next time, this is Grown in the South. Thank you.